Paul commands the church to rejoice with those who rejoice. Remember that? To rejoice with those who rejoice. And while we can and we should do that today in our context, here's the thing. In the kingdom, at the end of the age, we are going to have an opportunity to do that on a global scale. On a global scale. What I mean is the people of Israel, the literal nation of Israel, the chosen people of God in the Old Testament, the day is going to come, you understand, when they get saved. They're going to repent. They're going to believe. They're going to be reconciled back to God. They're going to embrace Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and they are going to inherit the kingdom. Every single promise God ever granted, they will receive. In the Bible, that is clear. That is indisputable. And the point is, as the church in that day, we are going to watch that happen. We are going to be there when that happens. We are going to watch that thing go down. And guess what we are going to do when we see it unfold? You know what we're going to do? We're going to rejoice. To rejoice with those who rejoice. And I guess my point is, today is practice for that day. Because what we're going to see this morning in the text is the future salvation of Israel. A preview of their redemption. The rebuilding of Jerusalem. Their restoration to the land, the repopulation of the nation. All of that is in the text. We're going to see the ruin and destruction of their enemies. That is in the text. And I know this sounds crazy, but this matters, church. This matters to you. The salvation of Israel is relevant to you, not because you are Israel, but because our fate is inseparably intertwined with theirs. You see, I'm not concerned necessarily if you are pro-Israel in your politics, but I do want you to be pro-Israel in your theology because God is pro-Israel in the plan of redemption. And yet not everyone thinks this. Not everyone thinks that, that, that the people of Israel should be our concern, let alone part of our theology. He says some people believe that the church has replaced Israel. That all the promises made to them have now been some way transferred to the church. And that's fine. That's fine if you want to believe that. But you're going to have to get good at gymnastics. Because gymnastics is what you're going to have to do with the entirety of the Old Testament. Just a bunch of gymnastics where you work around all the promises given to Israel and somehow make them be about the church. You can do that if you wish. But you had better have a very clear verse in the Bible that gives you the permission to do that. And if you do not have that verse, then you just let the text say what it says and rejoice with those who rejoice. This morning is literally one of the most beautiful and moving texts in all of the Bible. Like tear-jerking, tug-at-your-heartstrings kind of beautiful. And the reason why is because we see the love and affection of Yahweh for his people. He calls them his children. He says they're, they're graven on his hands. How could he forget them? How could he reject them? How could he fail to give any of the promises that he ever promised to give them? I mean, undeserving though they are, how could he fail to keep any of his promises to his chosen people? And I'll spoil the ending for you. He does not fail to do that. He will not forget them. He will not abandon them. 
And the proof that he won't is in our very text. And maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, okay, what about us? Jared pastors a church, not Israel. What about us? What about our challenges? What about our difficulties? Jared's going to preach a sermon about the future of Israel's whatever. And what about the issues and problems in our lives? How is Isaiah 49 going to help me in my life today? And that's a valid concern. And the answer is, does the faithfulness of God matter to you? Does the mercy and kindness and grace of God matter to you? Is it important to you that God's character doesn't change? That he is immutable and unchangeable? That he doesn't change his mind or cancel his plans? Is that important to you? How about this? Does the sovereignty of God matter to you? Is it important to you that God is sovereign over history, that he has the power to do every single thing that he claimed, that no one can alter God's plan or change his mind? Does that matter to you? Or how about this, God's divine election? Does that matter to you? Is it important to you that if God chooses a people to save, like Israel or the church, that he will never unchoose them? And finally, God's word, scripture. How important is it to you that the word of God is reliable and accurate? That what God has said, God will do. How important is that to you? Because you understand, that's why this matters. That's why the future salvation and restoration and redemption and repopulation of Israel matters to you because all of those issues come up for discussion, come into play with the people of Israel, which means the plan for Israel matters to you. So here we go. If you have notes, either way, here's where we're going this morning. I want you to see from our text four features of Israel's future. Four features of Israel's future and why it matters for you and your joy. Four features of Israel's future and why it matters for you and your joy. And the first feature of Israel's future is this. Number one, the recollection of Israel. The recollection of Israel. Because you know, we spent a long time in chapters 40 through 48, didn't we? In fact, I went back and checked on it. We spent six whole months in Isaiah 40 through 48. Kind of got away from me there. And I'll be totally honest, it was worth it. It was worth it. Because in those chapters, what did we see again and again and again, but the matchless worth and supremacy of God? That he is lofty and exalted. Chapter 41, verse 4, I am Yahweh, the beginning and the end. I am he. Chapter 42, verse 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name, my glory, I will not give to another. Chapter 43, verse 11, I, I am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. Chapter 44, verse 6, I am the first, I am the last, and besides me, there is no God. Chapter 45, verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. 46 verse 9, 
I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I mean, does not your heart burn when you hear God speak that way about himself? Oh, the worship and the courage just injected into the soul when we see that God is matchless and supreme, that when we see he is lofty and exalted, and that is the point of chapters 40 through 48, that these poor, bedraggled Jews rotting in Babylon would see that there is hope precisely because Yahweh is God and there is no other. That's chapters 40 through 48. Chapters... 49 through 55, listen carefully, is the next unit with a message. These chapters also go together. And like chapters 40 through 48, they also have a message and you can see it in the structure. If you have the notes, look at the structure. Chapters 49 through 55, listen carefully, are a series of sermon oracle type things that go back and forth between servants of uh, poems of the Messiah on the one hand and previews of the salvation he will bring on the other. Do you see that there? Servant poem, salvation for Israel. Servant poem, salvation for Israel. Do you see? And I'll just tell you right now, chapters 49 through 55 are absolutely massive to the book of Isaiah, even central to the book of Isaiah, if not even the Bible itself. You know why? Because yes, absolutely, Yahweh will have the supremacy. Absolutely, he is sovereign. Absolutely, he will get his glory at the end of the age. Absolutely, he will bring salvation to the nations and light to the world. And yet he will do so, here it is, through his servant, through the Messiah, through the Savior and Redeemer predicted all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. You see, that's what the book of Isaiah is. That's what the entire Bible is. A salvation saga of a sovereign Savior who will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. And last week, that's exactly what we saw, isn't it? The first servant poem, chapter 49, 1 through 13, that the servant would arrive, save the people of Israel, be a light and salvation to the nations, which means, which means, look at the chart in your notes, the next thing that we are going to see is a glimpse of the salvation the servant will bring to Israel. To Israel. That's exactly what the rest of the chapter is. And it all begins in verse 14. Look at the text. Verse 14, but Zion has said, Yahweh has abandoned me and the Lord has forgotten me. Do you feel the contrast there? But Zion has said, but what? Zion or Jerusalem or the people of Israel disagree with what Yahweh just said. They're not convinced. Whatever the message was in the previous section of that, they are not persuaded. And the message of the previous section was the servant is coming. Salvation is coming. Redemption is coming. Every single promise Yahweh has made will be given to you in full. And they're not buying it. They don't believe it. 
They think Yahweh abandoned them. They think, they think he has forgotten them. They think he's canceled the covenants, which makes sense, stranded in Babylon as they were. And they would have other opportunities to feel this way in the future, would they not? With the Greek and Roman occupation, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Holocaust, invasion of Muslim, brutal armies, slaughtering them from every possible angle. It could appear as though Yahweh had forgotten and abandoned them. And my question for you is, do you feel that way? Even at this moment, do you, do you feel that Yahweh doesn't much care for you? He has abandoned you. He has forgotten you. Because you understand that's what happens when we rely on our feelings, which are fickle and erratic. That's exactly what happens when we look to our circumstances instead of God's promises for joy and security. That's exactly what happens. We feel like this. Because you see it, right? The battle in your soul between your theology and your feelings. You believe one thing. You feel something else, which is true. The text says one thing, your feelings say another. Who has a louder voice and is more worthy of your trust? Because the people of Israel, that chose their feelings and not the facts of the faithfulness of God. And it led them to the dungeon of despair. They literally thought it was over for them. And so get a load of this. The rest of the chapter is literally a response to verse 14. And what is the response but the recollection, the affirmation, and the compassion of Yahweh for his chosen people? Wayward people. Look at verses 15 and 16. In response, in response that Yahweh had forgotten them and abandoned them, look what he says. Wait, forgotten you? Abandoned you? Are you serious? Look what he says. Shall a woman forget her nursing child? And without compassion, the child of her womb, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on my hands. Your walls are before me continually. You can see it. He is shocked by their accusation. You can tell by the illustration. Shall a woman forget her nursing child? And without compassion, the child of her, of her womb? There's no way that's going to happen. That is impossible. Now, there have been some terrible mothers in the world. Some that even killed their own children. But, but how can a mother somehow forget the baby that she's nursing or the child in her womb about to be born? That's just never going to happen. And yet, even if it did happen, Yahweh could never forget. Even these may forget their babies, Yahweh says, but I will not forget you. How could he? He chose them. He picked them. He predestined them. He singled them out and selected them. He made covenants with them. He, he adopted them and even in a sense married them. How could he forget his wife? How could he forget his children whom he chose? 
I mean, that is simply out of the question because look at verse 16. Here's the reason why he could never forget them. Behold, I have engraved you on my hands. Your walls are before me continually. I love that picture, don't you? Graven on Yahweh's hands, literally carved onto his very palms. Meaning what? Meaning permanence. Unforgettable affection and permanence for his people. Think about it like this. I have a piece of pencil lead, literally, stuck in my palm right here from 1998. And I never forget it because every time I use my hands, I see it. You see, this is not that. This is greater than this because I didn't ask to get pencil lead stuck in my hand. But Yahweh, on his own, as it were, engraved his people onto his very palms because it's one thing to get a tattoo of your child's name. It's a completely different level to get them engraved into your very flesh. It's not over for Israel, which is what the end of verse 16 means. Your walls are before me continually. Walls, what walls? The walls of Zion. The walls of Jerusalem, literal city. Yahweh is staring, as it were, always staring at the walls of Jerusalem, which is a vivid way to say it's not over for you. I have not forgotten you. I have not abandoned you. My eyes are never away from you. Every single promise I have made will be fulfilled. And mark my words, beloved, one day Christ will arrive. Israel will be saved. And Jesus Christ will rule the world from a throne in Jerusalem. And you are not Israel. You're not. But you also are carved on Yahweh's palms. Are you not? You too are the object of divine election. You too are the object of sovereign grace. You are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And once you are chosen, you cannot be unchosen. Once you are bought with the blood of the Son, you cannot be unbought. Once sealed with the Spirit, you cannot be unsealed or unadopted, unforgiven, or unloved. Now you who are the bride of Christ, you will never be divorced. And that again reminds us that true security and joy in this life can never ever be attached to our circumstances, but the realities of the promises of God and the achievements of his Son. Which brings us to the second feature of Israel's future. Number two, the repopulation of the people. The repopulation of the people. And here's where you're going to need some Kleenex handy because what you're about to see is the literal return, regathering, and repopulation of Israel at the end of the age. And the Bible's really clear about this, really clear about Israel's future, that there would be three major events that would take place in their history, three major events that would take place. Number one, that the Jews would be and are currently scattered to the ends of the earth in sin and unbelief. Deuteronomy 28. Event number two. 
a massive persecution of the Jews in the tribulation by the most wicked person in the history of the world, affectionately known as the beast or the antichrist. Daniel chapter seven, revelation 13. Thousands, maybe millions of Jews will be slaughtered. The rest will go into hiding. But number three, listen carefully. The lamb will return to Zion. Revelation 14. The Jews will repent. Zechariah 12. And he will summon his people from the ends of the earth. Isaiah chapter 43 and Isaiah 40 is clear. They will emerge from hiding in the shadows and holes in the ground and make their way back to Israel. And the nation once thought to be depleted and obliterated will once again fill the streets of Jerusalem. That's exactly what we see in verses 17 through 21. Look at the text. Your builders will hurry, he says. The ones who destroyed you, the ones who laid you in ruins will depart from you. Stop there. Who is the you there? Who is it that's being addressed there? It's the city of Zion. It's Jerusalem. Get this, being spoken to as if it were a literal living, breathing person. And not just a person, but a sad person. And not just a sad person, but a grieving mother and widow who believed all of her children were dead. Only to find them restored and filling her streets. That's what makes this one of the most touching and tender and dare I say tear-jerking texts ever. Not only because it guarantees the future for the people of Israel, but it so clearly displays the heart of God himself. Verse 17 describes builders, literal construction workers, rebuilding in the future of the city of Jerusalem because everything is going to be destroyed in the tribulation. It goes on. The ones who destroyed you, the ones who laid you in ruins will depart from you. Verse 18, this is beautiful. Lift up your eyes, speaking to the city as if she were a mother. Lift up your eyes all around and see. All of them that will be gathered, they will come to you. As I live, declares Yahweh, for all of them you will wear like a garment and you will bear like a bride. Who will be gathered? Who will come? Who who is Yahweh talking about? He's talking about people. He's the, the literal people of Israel. The city will be garbed like a bride on her wedding day. She will be adorned, decked out, not with jewels, but with souls. Jerusalem will look like a bride on the day of her wedding, radiant and beautiful, not with a gown, but with the children she thought were gone for good. Verse 19 is interesting. The grammar of verse 19 is it's actually choppy and broken. The Hebrew is actually pretty tough to read. And one scholar says the reason why is because it's written as though through tears of joy. And I think he's right. Look at what Yahweh says. For your devastated and desolate places and your destroyed land. Pause. Yahweh doesn't even finish the sentence. He interrupts himself and says, surely now you will be too cramped for inhabitants and those who swallow you up will be far away. Do you see that? You're going to be too cramped one day. There's going to be too many people 
one day, the Jews from the ends of the earth will arrive to Zion and there will be so many people, there won't be any more room. You understand, this did not happen after Babylon. Not like this. I mean, yeah, the people came home in 539 BC, that's true, but not very many. And they showed up in a miserable condition, condition sick with sin and prone to idols. One writer says, Although there was a minor gathering of a few thousand Israelites at the end of the Babylonian captivity, this verse imagines something far more glorious with millions and millions of people coming home to Zion. He's exactly right. And the point is this has not yet happened in history, which means it is going to happen. And when it does, it's going to look like this. Verses 20 and 21, so beautiful and dramatic that it deserves an Oscar. Look at the text. Even the children of whom you were bereaved will say in your ears, this place is too small for me. Make room for me that I may dwell here. Do you see the point of this little allegory? Zion is pictured as a mom who thought all of her children were dead. The people in Isaiah's day thought that Yahweh had rejected them. That the day would come when they would be no more. That they would be extinct exactly like the Canaanites God exterminated centuries before this. They thought that was them. And yet the future tells a different tale, doesn't it? Verse 20 is clear the day is going to come when Israel gets redeemed and restored and, and reconciled to God. And I take it literal. And so should you. So many Jews will come back home that there will literally be no more room. And what will Mother Zion say when she sees all of her children returned? Verse 21. And you, Zion, will say in your heart, who bore these for me? Behold, I, I was bereaved, and I was barren, and I was exiled, and I was wandering. But these, who raised these? Behold, I was left alone, but these, from where have they come? That is just so moving and powerful, isn't it? And you see the point. The physical city is not going to say that. The people are going to say that. Literal, Israel is going to return and repopulate the land. Not in their current state and condition, but regenerated and rescued and redeemed and reconciled to God. It's exactly what Zechariah 8 describes. If you have your notes, look at the text there, Zechariah 8. If not, just, just listen. It's the exact same thing Isaiah describes. The word of Yahweh of hosts came saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am jealous with great jealousy for Zion. And with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Thus says Yahweh, I, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Who is that? That is Christ. And I love this. Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. Each man with his staff in his hand because of age. 
and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Behold, I am going to save my people from the land where the sun rises and where the land where the sun sets and I will bring them back and they will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they will be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. That is exactly what Isaiah describes. And guess what we are going to do when we watch this go down? We're going to rejoice with those who rejoice. And texts like this, just take a step back. Texts like this that display the restoration, redemption, repopulation of Israel, this, this presents us with a challenge, doesn't it? And the challenge is this, listen carefully, it presents us with an interpretive challenge. How are we supposed to interpret this? Literally as Israel's future or symbolically as the church? Because you should know there are large theological camps Entire denominations that take these promises to Israel and with a wave of a magic wand, make them be about the church. Israel's canceled, they say. They, they crucified their own Messiah. We are the new Israel. All the promises made to them have now been transferred somehow to the church, so they say. And if that's what you want to believe it, that's what you want to do, that's fine. <clears throat> but you should know two things are going to happen. Number one. You reject the literal future for Israel, you make the entire Old Testament almost unintelligible. Why? Because you've got to go back and retroactively rewrite the text and where it says Israel and, and put in the church. And if you do that, you're going to butcher and mangle and twist the meaning of the text when instead you should just let the text say what it says. Number two, should you reject a literal future for Israel, like the one in this chapter, character of God, the promises of God, and the word of God are all called into question. Right? Think about it. If God could elect Israel and choose them, unconditionally choose them, and swear on his glory that he will keep his promises, and then not keep his promises, <laughs> what assurance do we have that he's going to keep his promises to us? And yet we have that assurance, don't we? Why? Because God is faithful. His word is true. He cannot lie. Second Corinthians 1.20 says, All the promises of God are yes in Christ, which means they are bought with his blood. Blood bought assurance of God's promises. And therein lies the guarantee that he will keep his promises to them and to us. Which brings us to the third feature of Israel's future. Number three, the reconciliation of the nations. The reconciliation of the nations. Because, you know, one of the things that offends people about God's plan for Israel is the place of prominence he gives them over the nations. The place of prominence he gives them over the nations. That doesn't mean better or superior because clearly that's not true, Right? All of Isaiah and the entire Bible, for that matter, is a testimony that Israel is, at the very root, a wicked and rebellious people, exactly like us. 
And yet the Bible's clear about Israel's prominence. Look at Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 in your notes. For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God chose you to be his possession, his prized possession out of all of the peoples on the face of the earth. Well, that's interesting. Deuteronomy 26, 19, same note. He will set you high above all of the nations which he made. That you would be a praise and a name and a glory. That you would be a holy people to Yahweh your God even as he has spoken. I mean, there's no getting around this. God gave the Jews a place of distinction on the earth. Not better than us, but different than us. And the point is very simply this. Listen carefully. At the end of the age, when Christ returns, we will see the fullest expression of their role. And when it happens, all the nations will come, wait for it, and they will give honor to Israel as the beauty and glory of the earth. And that sounds crazy. It's exactly what the text says. Look at verses 22 and 23. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations, and I will raise up my signal or banner to the peoples. And they, they will bring your sons literally in their bosom. <laughs> and, their, and your daughters they will carry on your shoulder. Kings will be your guardians. Their princesses will be your nurses. They will bow down their faces to the ground and they will lick the dust of your feet and you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who hope in me will not be put to shame. That is incredible, isn't it? That's prophecy. That's future. That's part of what's coming at the end of the age. And you can totally tell at the end of the age, Yahweh will send a summons to the nations and what will he summon them to do? What does it say? Bring my people home. And they'll do it. Look at verse 22. I love this. Behold, I, Yahweh says, I will lift up my hand to the nations. And I will raise up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your daughters in their bosom or carry them in their arms. And your daughters will be carried on the shoulder. That's how, that's how the people of Israel make it back to Zion at the end of the age. The nations will carry them if need be. Formerly wanting to conquer them and kill them, they'll carry them home at Yahweh's command. It's exactly what we see in chapter 60. If you've got the notes, look what it says. But the Lord will rise upon you. And his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They will all gather together. They will come to you. Your sons from afar and your daughters will be carried in their arms. What is this but a radical change of heart? What is this but the reconciliation of the nations, not just with Israel? But the God of Israel, what is this but the nations coming home to worship Jesus Christ? Because Christ is in the text. Did you see him? Not by name, but by title. 
This is really profound. Notice the summons at the beginning of the verse. Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations. I will raise up my banner to the peoples. Details matter, church. The glory is in the details of the text. Notice the parallels here. Watch this. Peoples and nations are parallel. Do you see that? Peoples and nations, parallel, equated, one and the same. But get a load of this. The word hand and banner are also parallel. Do you see that? Hand is oftentimes used as a metaphor in Hebrew for power, for God's power. The word banner there, get a load of this. The word banner is code for the Messiah. It's code for the Messiah. And we, in other words, the banner is Christ. And we know that it's Christ because in chapter 11, the banner is exactly what he is called. The one to come from David's line and rule the earth is called the banner of the nations. Meaning he will come and be the center of the earth. And so put the two together, banner and power, banner and power. Christ will come, will be the king, and when he comes, he will rule all things from a throne in Jerusalem. And again, this is what we see again and again and again in the book of Isaiah, namely Jesus Christ in all of his splendor and redemptive glory. You understand the entire life and ministry of Christ is contained in this book 700 years before he ever even showed up to the planet. His virgin birth, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, glorious resurrection, majestic return, invincible kingdom, terrifying judgment for those who reject his grace, eternal life for those who yield to his grace. The entire book of Isaiah is about the great servant, Jesus Christ, to come and make things right in the world. And I guess what I'm asking you, beloved, is... What side of history are you on? How have you responded to the banner, Jesus Christ? How have you responded to the virgin-born, sinless king who was slaughtered for sinners but coming to rule the nations? I'm not asking theoretically. I am asking you right now. How have you responded to him? Because if you know him, and you have yielded to him as Lord and God and King and Savior and treasure, do you also know that he is your high priest at the right hand of the Father? That he always lives to make intercession for you? That he supplies through his word all that you need to do what he commands? That he is the vine, that you are the branch that his power is perfected in your weakness. What this is, is a call to look to him, beloved. Look to the branch who is Jesus Christ, because you know the Christian life is not merely a one-time profession of faith, but moment by moment, desperation and dependence upon his grace. Look to him. And if you don't know him, and you have not, trusted him and you have all sorts of other things you love more than him frankly you find him to be boring 
and forgettable, way less beautiful and interesting than the treasures of the world, my friends, that's what spiritual death looks like. That's what spiritual death is. Blindness to his beauty, slavery to sin, a craving for spiritual poison, which means the time is now to yield to the banner by faith before it is too late to believe, to trust, to enjoy, to cling, to yield while there's still time. Because these nations in the future, by the skin of their teeth, they get saved. <laughs> and they show the authenticity of their salvation by the honor and, 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 and even love that they show to Israel. Look at verse 23. Kings will be your guardians. Their princesses will be your nurses. They will bow down with faces to the ground. They will lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am Yahweh, who those who hope in me will not be put to shame. That is stunning and profound, isn't it? <laughs> One day all the world will yield and serve and honor the people of Israel as the glory of the earth. Kings will protect them. Princesses will be their nurses. What? And notice they'll bow down to Israel and lick the dust of their feet, which is not as demeaning or nasty as it sounds, but it is familiar, isn't it? In fact, I think it's messianic. I think it points to the Messiah. You remember Genesis 3, the one who would come and crush the serpent's head and he would lick the dust. Psalm 72, it's a poem about the Messiah. It says that the nations will come and lick the dust. Meaning what? It's the ultimate sign of honor and submission, and that you have been conquered. And as the people through whom the Messiah rules, the nations will bow and yield in submission to him through them as his representatives. That's not crazy. It's exactly what chapter 60 says. If you've got your notes, look what it says, or just listen. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. And all those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. In other words, Israel will rejoice. And guess what we're going to do? We are going to rejoice with them. And I know this Jewish stuff kind of sounds weird. It kind of seems odd and out of place. It's totally not. It's totally not. You see, if we don't like the, the, the prominence of Israel and their centrality in the role and uh, in, in, in their role in God's plan, when it happens, we will. We will like it when it happens because then we'll see how dramatic it is. Then we'll see how romantic it is then we'll see how beautiful it is that God kept the loftiest of promises to the lowliest of people that were sin abounded in Israel, sovereign grace abounded all the more to Israel and to us. 
If we don't like the prominence of Israel and the plan of God, beloved, it's simply because we do not understand that God is the potter and we are the clay and he does whatever he darn well pleases with that clay. And here's the thing. I just need you to hear this. We are not footnotes in God's plan. We meaning Gentiles. We're not footnotes in God's plan. We have not received the the crumbs of his mercy. We have not received the leftovers of his love. We're not some afterthought or last minute addition to the plan of redemption. No, like Israel, we are clay and we are so thrilled to be clay. Are we not? Chosen clay, predestined clay, purchased clay, adopted clay clay, treasured clay. Can you think of any, any privilege in the world more thrilling and assuring than being a vessel of mercy for the glory of God? There isn't one that exists. Brings us finally to the fourth feature. Fourth and final feature of Israel's future. Number four, the rejection of the wicked. The rejection of the wicked. And this is, for the, this is for comfort. This is for comfort. Comfort for Israel as they languish in Babylon. Comfort for us as we daily see the terrors of a fallen world. Because it's hard. It's hard, beloved. Think of it from an unbeliever's perspective. It's really hard to believe that things will not always be as they are today. Right? That's really hard to believe that. And it's no wonder that you have a world out there absolutely filled with panic and chaos and madness and rage and absolute insanity. People don't have a clue. They don't have a clue about life, truth, meaning, significance, just like we did not before Christ saved us. They don't know what is good and right and true and beautiful. Everything's turned around. Everything is twisted. And the way things are looking, it looks like it's headed only to destruction. And yet, listen very carefully. What we are seeing out there is not, is not a world spinning out of control. No. What we are seeing out there is God's judgment. What we're watching is God's wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And my point is the full manifestation of that wrath is what we see in verses 24 through 26. Things will not always be the way they are. Look at the text. Yahweh poses a question. Shall the plunder be taken from the warrior? Or shall the captive be rescued from the oppressor? For thus says Yahweh, even the captive shall be taken from the warrior. And the plunder of the oppressor will be delivered. And I will contend with those who contend with you. And I will save your sons. And I will feed your oppressors their own flesh. And they will be drunk with their blood like wine. And all flesh will know that I am Yahweh, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. 
I'm just telling you, we need texts like this to give us hope, to give us perspective, to keep us sane and calm and courageous. And notice verse 24, Yahweh begins with a question. Shall plunder be taken from the warrior or shall the, the, um, the captive be rescued from the oppressor? And you see the point, right? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. Typically, this does not happen. Warriors don't give up their plunder. Tyrants don't give up their captives. That does not happen. They have the power. They have the control. What can you do? And yet when Yahweh intervenes at the end of the age, they will. Verse 25, for thus says Yahweh, even, even the captive of the warrior shall be taken and the plunder of the oppressor will be delivered. And here it is. I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your sons. The you there is still Zion. It's still Israel. But this has a wider application to, to all of God's elect, doesn't it? More certain than gravity is God's intervention to deal with the wicked and save his people. And you know, you know that the instrument that God will use to do that will be his own son, don't you? It's exactly what Psalm 2 says. Do you remember Psalm 2? As Yahweh watches the wicked of the world, how does he respond? What does he do? He mocks them. He laughs at them. And this is what he says, Psalm 2, 6. But I, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Psalm 2, 9 says that he will rule them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. Isaiah 63, 4 calls this the day of vengeance and that the king will trample them in the winepress of his wrath and splatter their blood upon his garments. Verse 26 is the righteous, and I repeat, righteous brutality with which Yahweh will conquer the wicked. He says, I will feed your oppressors. Literally, the Hebrew says, I will cause your oppressors to eat their own flesh and, and they will be drunk with their own blood like wine. I don't, I don't, I just, I just report the facts. And you understand this is not wrong for Yahweh to do this. This is not the ugly side of God. This is not inconsistent with his love. Rather, it is a manifestation of his love to do this. And get a load of this. It is not wrong for you to look forward God doing this. So long as we remember that we too should eat our own flesh and be drunk with our own blood. Notice the end of verse 26, the ultimate reason for judgment, the ultimate reason for redemption, the ultimate reason for everything God does. He says, here it is. Notice carefully, all flesh, when all that happens, this is the outcome. All flesh will know that I am Yahweh, your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. It's exactly what he said in Isaiah 48, 11, wasn't it? That all that he does, he does for the glory of his name. That's what this is. And after that, the end will come. And then 
will begin the beginning. And by that, I mean the new beginning, time without end, pleasure without measure, joy without hindrance, paradise without interruption. And although you are not Israel, you could tell this text totally applies to you because we will rejoice with those who rejoice and Israel will rejoice and we will re rejoice also, won't we? Because you understand, don't you? We are not Israel, but our fate is inseparably intertwined with theirs. I've said this before, the, the, the staggering guaranteed hope offered to Israel in this text is foundational to our own hope in Jesus Christ because it is one and the same hope. And in the future kingdom, we will co-reign and co-rule with Israel under our great high king. And we will, as they say, live happily ever after. I close with this. You know, I'm more convinced than ever. Church, uh, uh, you know, in a day and age in the church when we really care about biblical counseling and, and we really care about using truth to mediate hope and mediate health to the soul and give people profound encouragement, and I'm 100% behind that, I am more convinced than ever of the place that eschatology should play in mediating hope and health and encouragement to the soul. Because think about it. what fear in your life right now will still be there in the day of the great high king. Name one. Name one gaping wound in your soul that won't be repaired when the great high king comes to reign. Name one. Name one sin. One struggle, one deformity in your life that won't be healed and conquered and removed in that day. Name one. Name one thing that you have lost or suffered or sacrificed for the sake of Christ that won't be repaid back 10,000 times over. Name one. That is why eschatology matters. That is why Israel matters. God's word is true. His promises are sure. His love is inexhaustible. His sovereignty is unconquerable. His plan is infallible. His love is inexhaustible. His return is inevitable. And his future kingdom will be invincible. Let's pray. Oh Lord, sometimes we do feel like Mother Zion, a little abandoned, a little forgotten, cast off. And yet, Lord, your word is, is clear about this. That's just what we feel. That's not reality. You love us. If we are in you, oh Christ, the Father loves us and has from before time began. And every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is, is ours. We are purchased. We are predestined. We are adopted. We are reconciled. We are justified. 
We have all the riches waiting for us and the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Thank you, thank you, O Lord, that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into our hearts all that you have prepared for us whom you love. O Lord, may this text change us and transform us and sustain us in a world that has gone insane. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.